not just that you can be on an equal playing field as men. It's not to be like men. It's that women can reach very high levels in scholarship, in learning. But it's very hard to do that if you've never studied Gemara. The Gemara is the basis for everything. And it, it gives you a window into appreciating Judaism and, and to close women out of that. There's so many women who learn with me who say me all the time, oh, I didn't know that's where it came from. And I never understood that before. And I never, people are doing things in religion that they don't understand. And we're a generation who likes to understand everything. We have Google at the tips of our fingers. Anything you want to look up, you can find out. But I think that it's crazy to close this door to women. I, I, how are they going to continue to want to be Jewish, connect to Judaism, connect to religion without understanding? I'm Scott Kahn. And this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Last month, it was reported that due to low enrollment, the beginners and intermediate Talmud courses for women at Yeshiva University's Stern College would not be offered next year, meaning that the only remaining Talmud course would be the advanced class. We also learned that GPATS, the graduate program in advanced Talmud and Tanakh studies, would only have one Talmud track instead of two, as it did in the past, and that YU was not going to hire a new teacher to replace Rav Moshe Khan Zichronodivracha, who taught Talmud at Stern and who passed away several months ago. Although Stern has subsequently reversed course and does plan to offer those Talmud classes, the controversy raised important questions about the place of Talmud in the Torah curriculum for women. Should Gemara learning be a mandatory part of the high school curriculum for girls, as it generally is for boys? Regardless of whether Talmud classes for young women should be optional or mandatory, should they be modeled on the standard yeshiva styles of learning, or should Gemara be taught differently with a different emphasis based on gender? Was the fact that women were generally discouraged or even prohibited from learning for two millennia a necessary accommodation to reality, or, in hindsight, a mistake? Are there still areas of scholarship that, for political or religious reasons, should remain the exclusive province of men? Do we need new methodologies of teaching Gemara for both boys and girls? How should a Talmud teacher address texts that likely won't resonate with the teacher's audience, such as a statement that teaching one's daughter Torah is similar to teaching her tiflut, that is, something trivial or even obscene. To discuss these and other questions, I was privileged to speak to Rabbanit Michelle Cohen-Farber, the founder of Hadran, the teacher of the first online Dafyomi Shir taught by a woman, and the creator of the first international Siyum Hashas for Women three years ago. We'll get to our conversation in a moment. First, let me remind you to share this podcast, rate the Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for the Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. We also have started the Orthodox Conundrum YouTube channel, and this episode will be available there as well. The Orthodox Conundrum is looking for sponsors, either to promote your business or organization, or in somebody's honor or memory. If you would like to reach thousands of listeners every week, write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffeehouse podcasts, merch, and more. You should join our Patreon team too. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, if you don't have a podcast, you're missing out on the best new way to reach hundreds and thousands of engaged listeners. But if you want to start a podcast, you need to make sure that it's really good, both in terms of content and production values, so that you will be noticed among all the other podcasting options out there. 
If you have opinions that you want to share with a large group of people or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool or an organization that's looking to reach hundreds and thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a podcast and one that is of the highest quality and we can help you make that happen. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcast.com to learn how we can help you make a high quality, effective and entertaining podcast. Rabbanit Michelle Cohen-Farber is the founder of Hadran, whose mission is to advance Talmud study for women. She is also the founder and teacher of Dafyomi for Women, the first Dafyomi online shear taught by a woman. Rabbanit Farber spearheaded the first international Siyama Shas for Women in January 2020. She studied Talmud at Barilan and in Midrashat Lindenbaum's Scholars Program. She has taught Gemara and Halacha in Pelech, Jerusalem, Midrashat Lindenbaum, and Matan HaSharon. Rabbanit Farber and her husband, Rabbi Seth Farber, founded Kihilat Nativot in Ranana, where they live with their five children. Rabbanit Michelle Farber, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Great to be here. You are one of the most prominent teachers of Dafyomi in the world. Dafyomi, of course, founded by Rav Meir Shapiro quite a while ago. I suppose in the scheme of Jewish history, it's actually not that long, but this year is the 100th anniversary of the beginning of Dafyomi. This is something which has really taken the Jewish world by storm. It seems that every time there's a Dafyomi Sea, and we had one a little more than three years ago, right before COVID, more and more people are determined to finish Shas, and you are a central part of creating that community. So what do you think about that concept of the community that's being formed around Dafyomi and being formed around Limut HaTorah? So I often think back to what Rav Meir Shapiro would say today if he looked around at all the women that are learning and the communities that have been created. Um, When he talked about how a a man could get off a boat in America from Poland and meet people and have what to discuss with them, um, this is what's happening all around the world, not just with men, but with women as well. And if you look at Facebook, my Facebook feed is always filled with comments on Dafyomi, and you have people all around the world learning the same thing. And what's amazing, as has been being a teacher, both of Dafyomi and teaching Gemara for many years before that, I've always noticed that the relationships that people create through learning are very, very strong, solid relationships and kind of unique, a little bit different than relationships created in other ways. And what I've noticed is particularly in Dafyomi, there's an ability to create relationships across countries. I used to teach in my living room and my dining room, and we used to learn a group of women together, and it would be a podcast as well. And people would learn also by podcast. And most of the communication was the women around the table. And I want to take an example of one of those women. Um, her name is Judy Felber, and her son was injured in a terrorist attack four years ago. Bezrat Hashem, in two weeks, she'll be finishing Shas, and we'll be celebrating with the Hadron Sim, we'll be celebrating her Siyuma Shas. And she's a woman who came with very little background to Gemara, and on a whim decided, maybe I'll start learning the Daf, and began to be part of our group. And even though we'd see each other, we'd see each other on a daily basis, but it was basically coming into class. It wasn't a lot of time for conversation, leaving, maybe schmoozing a little bit on the way out. But when unfortunately our son was injured seriously, a huge community of people built around her were helping her with all sorts of things. But her closest friends were really the friends that she learned with every day. And throughout the years, as my Dafyomi class has changed into a, an international, we have a Zoom with people from all around the world, Australia. America, West Coast, East Coast, people are up sometimes at midnight on the East Coast coming to the Zoom in the morning in Israel time. And the community that's created through all these people that are learning together is so powerful and strong. Someone's sitting Shiva and the whole community gets together. And even though we're in different countries, they call each other. They they set up special ways to get, they send food. There's such a strong sense of community. One woman wrote one morning right after class, I just had a granddaughter 
And she said, by the way, I wrote that to you before I wrote to anybody else because you're my family. And there's there's something that I don't think I realized when I started how powerful that bond through learning could really be. And something that's really made the Dafiomi learning that's now international around the world and includes so many women all around the world, uh, that community, which actually includes men and women, is is really very strong. That's very beautiful. Anecdotally, before we get into some of the other issues that we're going to discuss, I'm curious, to what degree do you think that Dafiomi has actually expanded? The reason I'm asking this is that every seven and a half years at the Seum, it seems that everybody wants to start doing Dafiomi. And of course, first Masechet Brachot, there are a certain number of people. And by the time we get to the next Masechet, some drop off. And then by the time Erevin comes along, more drop off. At the end of the cycle, now that you've done this for quite a while, have you found that more people are doing it? Or really that's at the beginning and the people who stick with it for the full seven and a half years is somewhat consistent. What's your feeling about that? Someone gave me a statistic a while ago, someone who's very involved in Dafyomi, runs the portal Hadafayomi, and he told me the dropout, I think it was, maybe it was somebody else, it could be mistaken. The dropout rate in Dafyomi is about 85%, right? That start in Brachot and drop off. I don't know if it's an accurate statistic, nobody really knows that statistic. But I could tell you that with women, it's not the case. The women who have decided to take this upon themselves are incredibly determined. And the dropout rate, I would think, is probably closer to 15% rather than 85%. 15%. I could be wrong. Or maybe there's a dropout, but there's more who come in. Our numbers have not changed very much. Brachot has the most listeners also because people will also come later and listen to Brachot as well. It's a mesechet that gets learned a lot on our, on our site. But for the most part, our daily usership is 2,000 people. And maybe in Brachot, it was a little bit higher. But for the most part, it's been basically pretty consistent since then. There's some drops, some ups and downs. But I think that, and I know it from women I've met, they decide they're going to do it. They're in. They're not dropping. They are determined. There's a certain determination among women because they've never been exposed to this before or never learned it. In a, in a, they're coming to it from a different place. Wow. 2,000 daily listeners. That's that's unbelievable. What a tremendous zuchut. Let me ask you, before we get to some of the larger societal, educational, and religious issues that we're going to be talking about, I'd like to know more about how you became involved in Talmud study, and maybe you could explain how it's added or given something to you in your own religious journey. So my first exposure to Gemara was in sixth grade, Um, but for some reason in my school, we learned it in sixth grade and then stopped in seventh and eighth. I have no idea why. That was at Hafter Elementary School or junior high. Then I switched to Flappish for high school. And there I met Rabbi Harari, who was my teacher in ninth and 10th grade, a very young rabbi at the time. In fact, when I first went in to visit Flappish, I thought he was a student. I didn't realize he was the teacher, which I say kind of, it's a funny anecdote, but really it, it was indicative because the teachers I had had before then in Judaic studies were old, white bearded rabbis who were not relatable at all. And Rabbi Harari was very relatable and he did a fabulous job of relating the Gemara to our lives. I still remember his test. We were learning Baba Kama, Muki the dog, knocked over something, and are you responsible or not? And he made it very real. And since then, I've always loved the Bavas and all those kind of issues that you can relate to in a real way, where it's not just because of a Jewish uh, related issue, but also because as humans, we live in a world, we have responsibilities, and what's our level of responsibility uh, for anyone who's interested in learning Daf, we're getting to Bavakam already starting in uh, in November. So we're getting up on those sugyot. And they're really fascinating because, and, and things all over the Gemara have this relatable concept where this 
speaks to me as a person and as part of the world and, and what are my levels of responsibility or all sorts of in that area. So he was a fabulous teacher and I loved Gamara. 11th and 12th grade, I didn't have as strong teachers. Gamara was okay. But when I went to study in Israel for the year, it was obvious I was going to choose a school that taught Gamara, which there weren't very many at the time. Could be, I can't even remember, but I went to Lindenbaum. It could have been the only place at the time that had Gamara study. And in Lindenbaum, I just continued my love for Gamara. I went back to Barnard to study economics because I'd always thought I would go into business. But by the end of my first year, I realized that my passion was for education. I had given a sheer on Shavuot night when I was at Lindenbaum. And I saw that, number one, I I could carry a crowd, which at 2.30 in the morning was was quite a feat. Yes. And, and I realized there was something I was passionate about and I wanted to follow my passion. So at that point, I realized I wanted to go learn more because I realized I didn't know so much. My second semester, sophomore year, I decided to come to Israel and study for a half a year and come back to university. But while I was in Israel, I realized that the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know anything. And I realized that going to study economics at Barnard was really not going to get me on my career path. And I guess I was pretty career driven at that point. And I also really wanted to be in Israel. And I had met lots of people who were living in Israel single. And I realized that was doable, which originally I kind of thought, oh, you get married, you make Aliyah when you're married. So anyway, I moved to Israel in the middle of university. And I studied at Barilan, Talmud and Tanakh. And then at the same time, I lived at Lindenbaum and I was studying in their Beit Midrash. Then they started a Matamidot program, which was the first scholars program at the time that existed. And the idea was to provide advanced Talmud study for women. It was Gemara. It was Halacha. And that was great. I went to that program. They gave out a small stipend, which you know you could manage to live on and housing. And I, I was learning. But the problem was that at that stage, there weren't so many women that had done that kind of thing. And every year, new people would come into the program and the skills were, were weaker. And it was... It, we kind of maxed out of the class, myself and maybe one or two other people. We ended up going to Rav Lichtenstein, gave a shir at Gris. We were part of that shir. It was open to the public at the time. It then was closed to women. So at that point, I it was really kind of self-taught, which is, is sad. There just weren't opportunities. I kept looking for programs, and any program was basically taking women. I looked into the Toanot Rabbaniyot program, but that was halacha without really learning Gemara, and it was taking women that had never learned Gemara before. And it, it's hard when you... You're at a certain level to, to end up being in a class where people don't know basics. Now it's amazing because if I were living now, I would have had so many more opportunities and where I could be could be even different than where I am now because the opportunities and the way people are studying now is, is just different than it was then. And there's so many opportunities that didn't exist, which is really encouraging. We'll talk about later what the issues are that you know still not enough women are going into it which is a separate problem, but the, but the actually the opportunities exist. And that is more leading to what I do at Hadron. How did I get to Dafiomi? So I was teaching yeah. Gemara in high school. I was teaching in Linda Mamma in, in development of Halacha. I was teaching in Pelech in, in Jerusalem. I was teaching in Linda Mamm, uh, class in development of Halacha. It's one of the things I actually love, fascinated with how we got to the, from the Gemara to what we do today, which is often an interesting track. And then we moved to Ranana and the opportunities to teach Gemara, there were much less. And after a bunch of years of teaching in Matan, different classes and teaching a Gemara class, but the Gemara class was only once a week. And I felt that teaching Gemara once a week was just, I was teaching an advanced class there, but the women weren't advancing the way I really thought they should be because a once a week class just doesn't do it. And I was looking around for what, what could I do? And it happened, my luck was that right when I was really struggling with this, the high schools barely taught Gemara. They would give me two hours in a class, which in high school, it's doomed to fail. 
So at that point, the cycle was starting. It was the summer, I remember, and it was it started August 5th or something, which was, of course, a terrible time to start a Dafyomi class for women in Israel. No one's around in the summer. But I decided I was going to start September 1st. And before I decided to start- Is this 2012? Canvass- this is 2012. I started canvassing around people. Would it interest you? I went to my friend who runs marathons. I said, I remember I bumped into her in the gym. I said, what do you think? And she looked at me, seven and a half years. I can't tell you what I'm going to be doing in seven and a half years. I said, don't look at it as seven and a half years. How about this year? How about this month? She said, sounds interesting. And I started asking around and the people really seemed interested. So I said, you know what, let me start. Well, before I got started, I said, I've never taught a Dafyomi year. I've always taught Gemara in depth. Maybe in a whole year, we cover five Dapim. And this is to cover an entire Daf in 45 minutes. How do you do that? So I started listening. I went online. I started listening to people that were known to be you know, the, the top Gemara Shirim. And all of a sudden I realized, wait a minute, there's no women out. I didn't, never occurred to me. I said, there's no women's podcast. There's not a woman out there. And not only that, but if you're a woman who doesn't have the experience I have, but came from little background or some background, but not too much background, you're not going to relate to those Shirim. Number one, the language is Yeshivish for the most part. Number two, they presume a certain amount of knowledge. Number three, they don't speak to the women's issues. They gloss over them. They ignore them. They, how can you listen to a shear like that? And I said, I can't believe there's no opportunities for women out there. So I said, you know what? I'll teach this class in my house. But while I'm doing that, I'm going to record it. And I found a friend of mine who deals with podcasts. He did all the technical stuff for me and, and still does today. Helps me in my it's my uh, always go-to person if we're really stuck with something. And I got started. And I said, okay, I'm going to make mistakes. And it's going to be up there. And women making mistakes is never a good thing. But I said, if I don't start, it'll just never happen. And I wanted to kind of create a fact on the ground that women can learn. And I called it Dafyomi for women because I said, I want a woman to find me on Google. So if she puts in Dafyomi women, I'll come up. They're going to find you. Exactly. So that was the start of it. After... Five and a half years or five years, when it was two and a half years to the Siamashas, we started to discuss what are we doing for the Siamashas? Someone said, let's go to Madison Square Garden, or now it's at the Meadowland. said, no way, no how. I didn't do this to go be behind a machitza and go to a men's celebration. So the, ha- the idea for the Siamashas for women was hatched, and we decided we were going to turn it into a big event and use it as a way to promote Talmud study among women. And it was hard, a lot of hard work, but our dreams came true. And that's our whole idea was to take this infectious love of learning that we have and tell women, this is for you. And we had so many people who said, and I learned Daf, but I'm not finishing Shas, so I can't come. Or I'm learning Gemara, but I'm not learning Dafyomi, so no, this isn't for me. Or I don't learn Gemara, so this isn't for me. And we had to work on convincing people that if you believe in women's learning and you believe that your daughter should be learning, or you believe that you wish you could learn, or any of those things, or you just think it should be an opportunity for women, then you should come to this event. And we did a lot of marketing, and the event was sold out a week and a half before, and we had to close registration. How many people is that? How much is sold out? 3,300 people came. Unbelievable. And yeah, and 15,000 watched online. And so many people the next day said, I'm doing this. Because the whole goal of the event was to say, this speaks to you, you can do this. And it was to undo all the PR job of 
generations upon generations upon generations of saying Gemara is not for women, we worked against that to give it a positive twist and say, this can speak to you and it's, it's accessible to you and you don't need background and you don't need, you know, and this will enrich your life. You asked me one thing that I didn't address. I'll finish up with that, which is, what does this do for me? What it does for me, it, it enriches my Jewish life. It it enriches my identity as a, as a Jewish woman. You know, Jewish women don't have an easy time in, in Judaism sometimes. And I find learning, which is a playing field that anyone can be on at an equal level. And so for me, it, it makes me feel a strong part of religion so that other times where there might be some inequality don't bother me because I have my place where women can be no different than men. Okay. Thank you for explaining that. And that's really beautiful. And I will ask you about that place where women can be no different than men in just one moment. I have a quick question to ask you. When you first started doing the podcast, the recorded Dafyomi Shiurim, how many people were listening then? You said now there's about 2000. How many was it at the beginning? So very few. Um, I didn't have time. Okay. Let's put it this way. My kids were home at one o'clock in, in the afternoon. I had little kids at the time. All I had was my mornings and it was basically focused on this, preparing. It was all new to me because even though I teach Gemara for many years, preparing every single daf is a lot of work and I didn't have time or funds for marketing. So over time, word got around, people were hearing about it. There was a person who put together a list, a man who put together a list of daf Yomi Shirim and I saw he put my my shear up there and it was getting around probably for 100, 150 people. Before the Siyama Shas, where we got some more marketing going, at the height, there were probably 250 people downloading. And then all exploded. It was really, and I always envision it like a wall was broken down, you know, and all these people saying no, no, no. And then the wall broke down and, and they all came pouring in. And it was this amazing you know, interest in women learning. That's fantastic. So speaking of Dafyomi in a more specific and direct way, a couple of weeks ago, people who do learn Dafyomi learned the Mishnah and Sota Dafkaf Abud Aleph, which presented the argument between Ben Azai and Rabbi Eliezer whether a person should teach his daughter Torah. So while Ben Azai requires it, he says you have to, Rabbi Eliezer says that anyone who teaches his daughter Torah is as if he teaches her Tiflut, meaning obscenity or triviality. There are different ways of translating it. So Rabbi Eliezer's opinion was for many years considered normative. Ben Azai, who said you should teach your daughter Torah, was considered the non-normative opinion for a long time. And obviously that has changed in certain communities over the past century, maybe less than this past century. But at the same time, even when women started learning with the advent of Beis Yaakov, this isn't speaking about Gemara in this mission, it's just talking about Torah in general, even though women and girls started learning Torah over the past century, in the 20th century, Gemara for many people remained absolutely off limits for women. Why do you think that ban specifically in the case of Gemara was in place? And why do you think that it should not apply anymore? So I think pretty simply, it really was a matter of the difficulty of understanding Gemara. And if you take women in those days who are totally uneducated and spent their day getting water from the well, doing laundry by hand. I lived once for a week without a laundry machine and I could understand what it means to do laundry by hand and cooking the food. Yeah, all of that, they didn't have time. They weren't educated. They didn't learn anything. They couldn't read. They couldn't write. So it's hard to teach Gemara to somebody like that. And until very recently, the Gemara was wholly inaccessible to anyone who really didn't have a lot of time to put into studying. Now I say it's somewhat different with the Steinsaltz who began the whole process and the Schottenstein and you know now the current English version based on the Steinsaltz. 
it's and and online opportunities, podcasts, videos, YouTube's, it's changed the whole ability to have someone who doesn't have time to sit for three hours a day or an hour and a half a day or whatever it might be and give them the opportunity to learn. So I think that ban on women, first of all, it is interesting to note everybody always quotes Rabbi Eliezer, but Ben Azai does say that women can learn and that women should learn. But but, but yes, it's true that most people went in the way of Rabbi Eliezer, but that also I think has a lot to do with his history. I always like to quote, I once spoke in my kids' elementary school and I, I looked up some statistics and I found out that a woman in the eight, late 1800s, I don't remember all the details, but she was a lawyer and, or she was trying to be a lawyer and they wouldn't allow her to practice law in America because in order to be a lawyer, you had to own land and women couldn't own land. This is in America in the 1800s. So that just puts things in perspective. This isn't about religion and it's not about, it's about the effects of society on, on the, so Rebelezer's statement is you shouldn't do this. First of all, no one ever said this is a halacha de oraita, right? That one can't learn. And it was said in a time and place. And we're clearly living in different times. You know, women are doctors, women are lawyers, women are professionals, women study at very advanced levels, they're professors. And that's where I think to not learn Gemara is actually detrimental to people's religious. You know, when I said before, and, and I worded it in a particular way, but I, I realized after I said it that I wanted to word it a little differently, which is not just that you can be on an equal playing field as men. It's not to be like men. It's that women can reach very high levels in scholarship, in learning. But it's very hard to do that if you've never studied Gemara. The Gemara is the basis for everything. And it, it gives you a window into appreciating Judaism and, and to close women out of that. There's so many women who learn with me who say me all the time, oh, I didn't know that's where it came from. And I never understood that before. And I never, people are doing things in religion that they don't understand. And we're a generation who likes to understand everything. We have Google at the tips of our fingers. Anything you want to look up, you can find out. You know, now you can find it all on ChatGBT. But someone asked also me a question true. yesterday and then sent me what ChatGBT said. I said, okay, well, the next thing we need to do is have ChatGBT teach Gamara from a woman's perspective and we'll be set. I can, <laughs> I can retire. But I think that that it's crazy to close this door to women. I, I, how are they going to continue to want to be Jewish, connect to Judaism, connect to religion without understanding anything? So there's a lot there that you said, and I want to ask about some of those points. But before we get into some of those details, you mentioned before that 100 years ago, 200 years ago, women would be spending their whole day doing the laundry, going to the well, and so on and so forth, and therefore historical conditions were very different. So perhaps this is an unanswerable question, but do you think that that implicit ban on women's learning that was in place for many years, for centuries, was a historical mistake or something which we can understand as it was right for then, but not right now. I guess what I'm asking is in the 1500s, let's say, was it right for women not to learn Gemara and that was a good policy or was it an unavoidable policy, but it was still a mistake then as well? So it's an interesting question. I, You see throughout the generations, there were knowledgeable women. One of my favorites is a less known one. Okay. We all know Bruria and and there were knowledgeable women and they were respected in the community. So I don't think that anyone thought that it was a bad thing if there were women who were learning. I just don't think that as a whole, it was relevant. I have two things to say about that. I'll tell you about my favorite woman and then I'll get back to what I want to say about that. My favorite woman is the the, the mother of the, the author of the Drisha and the Prisha, it's Rav Yoshua Falk. And he writes in his introduction to the Drisha and the Prisha, which is a commentary on the Torah. If you want to look this up, you can open the first volume of the Torah. And in there, there's introductions. Introductions in general to Sfarim are really interesting. 
And he writes about his mother and how she was a leader in the community and how she would correct mistakes that women were making. For example, women often, and this still happens today, light candles on yantif the wrong way, because you're supposed to actually light from a pre-existing candle after you make the blessing, as opposed to on Shabbat, where you light the candles and then make the bracha because you already accept Shabbat. And Yantav, you can transfer candles. And he basically says that his wife, this was one of her pet peeves, and she went out teaching the women not to do this. And he talks about his, his mother in such a respectful manner, how much he, he respects her for her knowledge. And there were always women that were knowledgeable, and it wasn't looked at. People didn't look down upon them, as far as I know, as a bad thing, that here's this woman that has knowledge. So I don't think was it a mistake? I think it just wasn't relevant. And often you see when we talk about halachic change, which is something that obviously is a big deal, especially in our time where so much of the world is changing. And the question is always, how is halacha going to change and in what way and how quickly and and how does that all work to something you gain an appreciation for by learning, which is why I said I like teaching development of halacha, because you can see how change worked then and how it could work now. And one of the things is that Halacha often changes when there's a need, when people are interested in that change. If no one's interested, then there's no need to change anything. I'm sure there's lots of things in halacha that we would, that could theoretically change, but nobody cares about them. And I think that in those days, the women didn't care. They weren't interested in it. And because they weren't being doctors or lawyers or anything else, they weren't looking for an intellectual experience within the religion. It might not have meant so much to them to learn. They had a different way of connecting. Is it bad if they connected through that? I don't think anyone thinks, or maybe some people did. But again, there were women who connected through learning and it was they were respected within their community. So I, do, I don't think it was a mistake per se. Before we move on from Sota, I want to ask you about Rabbi Eliezer's opinion and the way he said it, which I guess you could find it difficult to understand. It's not just saying don't teach your daughter Torah. It's saying you're teaching her tiflut. You're teaching her something negative. And that's a very difficult text to deal with. And this relates back to what you said a few minutes ago about how when you look into the Dafyomi Shiurim, they were all taught by men, and they weren't teaching women's issues. And I'm curious, first of all, broadly, this is part of that question, broadly, what do you mean they're not teaching women's issues? But perhaps part of that is what I'm asking now is how do you deal when you teach with a text that says that teaching Torah to your daughter is like teaching her obscenity or triviality? How do you deal with a difficult text like that when it comes to women's issues, when you're teaching women, how do you address it to them? So there's a lot of different um, types of statements, and therefore the answer is not a completely clear-cut answer. Each time it's a little bit unique, but it all generates, it's all got a general idea about how to deal with it. Number one, I apologize for being reductionist. I realize that. Number one, acknowledge. (laughs) This is a difficult text. Sometimes I prepare people before I say, just wait, we're going to get to something you're going to have some issue with. And that already acknowledging, and and as I said, I did listen to a few shirim and was shocked at the lack of acknowledgement. To me, that was offensive. Um, For example, I listened to someone shiur on the beginning of Masechet Erchin. Erchin is about the value of a person. And as opposed to a statement that's, let's say, negative about a woman, which already that, you know, Rabbi Lezer has to be explained in some particular way, but but here's a very basic halacha that says in the Torah that if you give a value of a person to the temple— a man between the ages of 20 and 60 is worth 50 and a woman is worth 30. And as he taught that, he just continued on. And I thought to myself, what? You didn't address the fact that women are worth less than men. And how do we deal with that as people in a modern world? And that is something that's number one important. As soon as you acknowledge it, you you speak to the person. It's like Rabbi Lezer made this statement and he was looking at women as an outsider. 
it's very different when you look at women from the inside and you think about as a woman, how would I hear that? And I'm sure that statement bothers men as well. But as a woman, you're all the more sensitive to it. And I think a lot of the men don't even think about that or don't know how exactly to address it within, you know, how do I address it without saying there's a problem? And I can't say there's a problem because that would be difficult. But I always acknowledge these statements. And then often they can, you can understand them again in a, in historical context. I'll quote Alana Kershan, who always says, when I read the Gemara, I view myself as a man, because what is a man? Someone who owns land, someone who has intellect, someone who, you know, and that women, she says, you know, the word woman in the, in the Gemara doesn't relate to me, basically, which is interesting. You can't take it to everywhere, but it, but it's an interesting concept of, of saying those are women of the, their time. And I'm a different kind of woman that the Torah just didn't, the Gemara just didn't address necessarily. Again, we're addressed in certain ways. So those statements can be understood, number one, historical and understanding where they came from. And I think once you have understanding, you can, it's like anytime you disagree with somebody, as soon as you understand where they're coming from, it makes the whole viewing of it very different. What I also like to say is that for all those people who quote those statements, the Gemara was actually very forward thinking in a lot of ways about women and trying to protect women and trying to, yes, see the world through women's perspectives. And I'll give a few examples. Ketuba, for example. Ketuba, which some people think of as not exactly a, an equality kind. You know, I've seen people who write their own ketubas. They don't like those. But a ketuba is to protect the woman. It's to make sure that the woman is protected, that she has money, that, that if the husband divorces her, in fact, they say, so that he doesn't quickly divorce her because a woman who's divorced, a man who's divorced is not so bad in, in, in their society. But in that society, a woman who was divorced was looked at, you know, she, she was worth less money. She was all of that. It, it, it wasn't looked at as a good thing. You don't want to be a divorced woman in those days. And as a result, the rabbis tried to make it difficult for men to divorce the women. And, and they said, you have a penalty to pay. You have to pay her all this money. And, and, and also the mitzvah of ona, for example, which is the man is to commit to give sexual relations to the wife when she wants them. Now, if you think about male-oriented societies, the, the world of sexuality is, is what's good for the man. And Judaism, there's so many sources that show the exact opposite. Things that might not be permitted are permitted if the woman wants it. And that there's this side of, actually looking at her perspective. So I think that for all those statements and, and anyone who learns Gemara with me knows that there's many different opinions about everything. So while there might be people who said like Rabbi Eliezer, there are people like Ben Azai who say they should learn Torah. So it's not, a, nothing is clear cut in the Gemara and not this issue either. Okay. Then I want to go back to something you mentioned a few minutes ago about that individual who said, when I learn Gemara, I think of myself as a man. And that leads to an interesting question about the fact that Gemara learning has been done almost exclusively by men until very recent times. So do you think that even if women and men learn the same subjects, perhaps we as Klal Yisrael, we as the nation of Israel, should hope to develop a new derech halimud, that women should develop a new derech halimud that relates to their specific experiences. In other words, the derech halimud that we have now, the way we learn Gemara, is through male lenses. It's just the way it's always been done. All the Mepharshim classically were men. The Gemara itself quotes almost exclusively, not entirely, but almost exclusively men. Even if we're working within that system, though, when women learn those same texts now, do you think it would be worthwhile for them to develop a different kind of derech halimud? Of course, based on the text, loyal to the text, but 
seen specifically through women's eyes? Or is the goal of women's learning for women simply to learn the same way that men learn and therefore to not, I won't even say equalize, but simply to have more people learning as opposed to uniquely women's voices there? So first of all, I want to question something about the question, which is Derek Halimud sounds like there's one way to learn and it's the way that men learn and women should create something different. So first of all, Derek Halimud is something that has morphed throughout history and it's always mostly influenced by the way things are being studied at the time. So whereas in Tosfot study different from Rashi because the first university was open in Paris at the time and university learning began rather than in Rashi's times where people were kind of learning at the rabbi's house and in Tosfot's time, there were much bigger classrooms. There was a population explosion and the learning was a different style already. And nowadays, there's so many different styles of learning that have been developing. And I do think that women's learning is different. However, not to say it has to only be done by women. I think that there's a different way of studying now that's based on the way people are learning things in general um, and changes that is different, differs somewhat from the, I would say, the more recent styles of learning that were popular at the time, okay, let's say in the last 100 years, or that has changed as a result of women approaching the text. And as a result of other people who are maybe coming from an outside the yeshiva type of perspective, I think anything outside of the yeshiva perspective is already changing, people are having different perspectives on how they approach the text. Um, I'll talk about my own personal, I was taught only by men. And I, as I was learning and teaching, you know, I kind of had that way that I was brought into learning through kind of that typical yeshiva kind of approach. And then when I started teaching women around my table and they started asking me all sorts of questions that I had never really considered before, it shifted my way of teaching because I started to see the things that interested them that would never have interested my male teachers who taught me. And partly because they're women, partly because they didn't have that yeshiva background. When you have a yeshiva background, you already from a young age start learning in a particular way. So your head kind of gets into that way and you continue in that way. But when you're a woman and you come to it from a fresh start, and particularly when you come to it when you're 30, 40, 50 years old and you have your life experience or 60, and you come to it from a different perspective. You know, people, I had an architect, so we were talking about the sukkah and the measurements. She had all these interesting things to say. And I had a tour guide who was coming from her historical perspective. And they each added things and also asked different questions and made, challenged me to view the Gemara in a very different way. And my teaching style has changed as a result because I view it not necessarily that my way of thinking is different, but I view it through what I know my listeners are looking to hear and what questions interest them. And what I find really interesting at, at Hadran, what we do in our organization, besides that I teach a Dafyomi Shir, we generate content by women about the Daf. And it's all women. We actually have had some arguments here and there. Should we, you know, thinking about, should we have men's content that's really good on our site that we, but we really want to create a place that's really a place for women's commentary on the Gemara. And it's one of the things that definitely in terms of long-term goals, possibly to create a, a women's commentary on the Gemara. And what I notice is that a lot of the content generated when I, because they do it based on the content of the doc. And I always say, oh, that's exactly what I was thinking really needs to be delved into. Number one, it could be issues that specifically relate to women, but it's not even that. It's just, it's very hard to define, but there's a certain perspective that is, it's less theoretical. It's a little more practical. Like I remember it was bothering everybody when we learned Chagiga. Did the women go to the Aliyala Regal? And, and if they didn't, what was going on at home? The men went on Aliyala Regal, the women were at home. 
what was going on with the kid? You know, what was the Chag like? Was the Chag different? You know, and when I learned Chagiga and, you know, if you would learn in Yeshiva, they wouldn't be thinking about those practical questions. Like, how did it look? They want to visualize everything. And it's not to say that men don't do this also. There's definitely men who do it. And I think it's one of the reasons why I have probably about 20% of my listenership is men, because there's men who think this way also, but there's not a lot of Dafyomi Shirin that are taught in this way. There are a few, but not a lot. So I think, again, gender differences are always tricky because they don't, it's not always men, women, but I do think that, and the things that I find very interesting are often things that women talk about, because I think that there's a different, there's somewhat of a different perspective there. That's very interesting. I, I definitely hear that. I want to ask you if you think that Gemara should be a mandatory part of the curriculum for women. Obviously, the impetus for talking about this was the recent situation that took place at Stern College, where certain classes were apparently temporarily suspended when it comes to women's Gemara learning. Thankfully, that seems to have been changed. But in terms of whether or not Gemara should be mandatory for women, because until now, many places, or let's even take your own experience, when I went to yeshiva, I couldn't choose a non-Gemara place. Back then, there was no such thing as a non-Gemara place. I don't know if there is now. For women, you said the only place you even could learn Gemara was going to a place like Lindsay Malm in all likelihood. Do you think that Gemara should be mandatory for women when they're studying as they grow up? I had a hard time restraining myself while you were asking your question in such a long manner because absolutely, yes. <laughs> the answer is yes, 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 yes. Gemara should be absolutely mandatory. Why? Do we make math mandatory? Is everyone good at math? No. Some people can't handle math. Some people can't do math at all. It's hard for them. They struggle through it. But it's it's basic. It's something no one would say, don't do math, unless you know maybe there's some extreme case. But I think that Gemara should be the exact same way. This is the fundamentals of our religion. Like I said, I really believe that we're going to lose people connecting to religion. And again, I don't mean just religion like orthodoxy, but connecting to Judaism if people don't have any understanding of what they're doing. And it's very hard to understand. And people say, oh, women should learn halacha, things that are related to them. Now, if you learn halacha without learning the background to it, it's like I learn how to do this, how to do that. It just seems like a lot of silly details. I think that learning Gemara gives you an appreciation of that. It gives you an appreciation of everything in our religion, of Jewish philosophy. Everything is built on the Gemara. And I think that many people say Gemara is not for me. Now, when anyone tells me anytime, I don't like learning something, it just means you didn't have a good teacher because I believe that any subject could be taught in an interesting manner. I remember once someone was one of the younger students at Lindenbaum was setting up a chavrita with me and I went through, okay, what do you like? She says, I really don't like halacha. I said, great, we're having a halacha chavrita because you obviously didn't, you know, I'm going to show you that it's interesting. And I really believe that. I mean, I might not be the one to teach every subject, but I think that you can learn any subject from a teacher who's passionate, who loves what they're doing. The problem, and here comes the second part, with making Gemara mandatory is there's a need for excellent teachers. Because while in the men's schools, now the men, that's a whole different topic and that's a whole different it's a big topic. challenge. Maybe I'm when it's I'm done with the women's yes. revolution and I've created, you know, and it's all done, then I can uh, move to the men's. But the men's has its own serious problems. And I do imagine there's places now that don't teach Gemara to men because they've realized that it's not for everybody. But I do think that how do you know it's not for everybody? You have to be exposed to it. If you're never exposed to it, you'll never know if it's for you or not. But if you're a man and you go to school and you don't like learning, you might end up in a place where there's learning later and say, oh, I'll go to a Gemara Shear because there's just an expectation in our communities that Gemara relates to men and you'll show up. 
But if you're a woman and you didn't like Gemara the first time you learned it, if you're that teacher that messed up Gemara, you really are, it's your fault because you didn't teach it in a good way. And now these students will never open a Gemara again. In fact, when I was teaching in high school, we used to have arguments with the, with the males on the staff. They would say, we have to get the girls, we have to make Gemara interesting. Not so much Chavruta, make it interesting. Show them all the interesting things that come out of it. And I said, not that you don't need that, you need that. But I said, if you don't give them Chavruta, they will never open it again. They'll forever be intimidated by this book because women are intimidated by Gemara already. It's it's an area that's not supposed to be for them, really. They didn't learn it before. They, and it's not expected they're going to continue in it. So in order to get them to continue, they have to have some sort of ownership over it. They have to feel connected to it. And if you connect them through grappling with it, then they're not any more intimidated by it. And I think that a huge, you know, in terms of the, the you mentioned the Sturm YU thing. And when I first heard about it, I said, well, what is the school doing? I, I understand there was low registration, but were they promoting Gemara study in the school? Because if you don't, what I've learned at Hadron, if you don't promote Gemara, you won't get any students. You have to work on marketing it. You have to market it. You have to tell people this is for you. In fact, Rabbi Leah Sarnai. So when she first posted it, that's where I saw it the first time. She said, I, now she's a fabulous Gemara teacher now and a real su- superstar in the world and she, in the world of Gemara learning. And she said, to take my first class at Stern, I needed encouragement. I didn't know that I should be taking it. And, and that's what I think has to happen. I think that that there needs to be this marketing and maybe the whole letter that was then written to promote, you know, that now I'm hoping that the registration now jumped jumped up. Okay, so I'm going to push back a little bit. Only in the sense that I certainly think that women should have just as much opportunity and mandatory Gemara learning as men. I'm not disagreeing from that perspective, but I sometimes think that it's overemphasized for some young men. Maybe they're not, you said that it depends on the teacher, and I agree 100%. There are a lot of bad teachers out there. I also think that sometimes they're simply not intellectually mature enough to really deal with some of these issues. And I've learned from my own days as a teacher that one of the main things that many students learn in high school Gemara is that they hate Gemara. That's what they've learned, perhaps because the teacher wasn't good, but also perhaps because they're just not ready for it. The Mishnah says Gemara comes at the age of 15. They sometimes start learning at the age of 10, 11, 12, and sometimes even 15. Everyone's different. I've seen kids who hated Gemara at 15, but then later on when they're 18, 20, 22, now they're ready for it. I'm not going to attribute it entirely to having bad teachers and good teachers. Sometimes it's a matter of not being ready. So my question is this. Do you think that women, girls, they should be learning Gemara in the same misgeret, the same framework as it often is in many schools, speaking here in Israel, for boys, where they have an entire morning Seder, they're learning for three hours with a shear afterwards for an hour and a half. And I think sometimes that's not necessarily the smartest way, or if it should be a smaller part of the curriculum. And the reason, again, I ask is not because they should learn it less, but I wonder if because boys should also learn it less. What's your feeling about that? 100% agree with you. I think the, the boys' system needs revamping. I think three hours of Gemara a morning for a boy or four hours of Gemara is not time not used well. I can take example from my son in his yeshiva. It was definitely not time that was managed well. And when I go back to the good teacher, it doesn't necessarily mean only a good teacher, but a good method of teaching. And I think those two things go together. Like, for example, when I would teach, I, I taught for a number of years when we moved to Renan and I wasn't teaching in high school here anymore. I would teach Chugim for girls. And we would learn, let's say, Baba Metzia, and we would make it practical. Okay, you have your friend's phone, you borrowed and you broke it and it fell. And, and in high school, I used to act out scenes. And it's about how you teach it. 
Gemara could be for you if it's, it might be watering down at that age. You might need to take small sections and not get lost in sugiot that span two dapim of the Gemara and you just get lost. Where were we? What was I doing? There's a way to break it down and you can build it. You can start in seventh grade with smaller. You can build it up eighth grade, ninth grade, you know, and you can come up with a whole process of how to slowly get the kids used to the idea to the point where they are capable of handling it properly. And they might not learn Gemara well. Like I learned in high school for four years, two periods a day, by the way. We had two periods a day every day. And which two periods a day is an hour and a half. That's much more reasonable than three hours. I don't understand that whole three hour thing. And I know when I was teaching in Pelech, I had some students who they compared to the boys and they said the boys in Chorev came out with the same Gemara knowledge that the girls in Pelech who were learning six hours a week. Because in six hours, when that's all you have, you use your time well. When you have so much time, you kind of get all over the place. And it also, when my son, another anecdote, when my son was going into uh, high school, we had a chug it with the principal. When she means you know, they come to the house and someone's house and they, you know, people ask them questions. So I, of course, asked, how do you teach Gemara? Now, he didn't know where I was coming from. He didn't know who he was dealing with. And uh, and he started saying this, that, we do that. I said, do you do chavruta? said, no, not really. So what do you mean you don't do chavruta? How do you not do chavruta? You know, and, and I was really surprised to see that in a boy's yeshiva, a solid, good yeshiva, for three hours in the morning, they have three hours without chavruta, because I guess they don't trust the boys that they're going to do anything. But how could you, how could you not, how are you learning? That's, that's not how you learn by the teacher teaching for three hours. But they're still doing three hours, which sounds completely What are you doing in those three hours? Right. I, and I couldn't, I walked out with not getting a clear answer about it. I chose the school anyway, because of other reasons, but, but definitely Gamara was a huge disappointment there. And he also only learned love Gemara. We went to yeshiva after. So I, I do from firsthand experience, I can see that the, the system is not good, but I think that it could be revamped both the boys and the girls. And there should be some middle ground there where we can get it to a place where we can teach them. And I think they're one of the projects I'm, I'm working on is how to get into high schools and have teachers share resources with each other and come up with methods because it's a challenge and use everyone's experience to come up with what's the best way that we can teach Gemara. It's a big challenge. And I used to help run a yeshiva that was into teaching Gemara skills. And we saw that one of the biggest problems often is for many teachers that unlike the way you teach high school history, which is generally about content, and unlike the way you teach math in high school, which is generally about process, when it comes to Gemara, we think we're teaching process, but in actual fact, we're teaching content. We'll say, I'm teaching skills. And then the test is entirely about what Rabbi Eliezer said, what the Benazai say. We sometimes confuse those practices and we don't understand that sometimes it needs to be taught like math and sometimes like history and they get confused. I find that's a common problem. Well, it's the issue that learning Gemara has multiple elements to it. It's a new language. It's a new way of thinking. It's a whole different logic system. That in and of itself is something you need to get over. So number one, you have the problem of Aramaic, which is a problem whether you're a Hebrew speaker or you're an English speaker. It doesn't make a difference. Number two, you have a problem with the way of thinking, which is a totally different way of thinking than we're used to. And then, you know, you have all the other challenges of it's it's challenging intellectually. You have to be thinking. You have to keep it. It has to be organized well. I'm very into organizing. It's one of my things that I'm a little bit crazy about. You know, let's remember where we were, what the structure is. I make charts all the time. If you use charts, it helps people visualize, although not all students. Like at one point in high school, I was giving people a choice of, what way do you want to summarize the sugya? You can either read the text and you know record it, send it back to me as a recording, you know, without 
having the vowels and all that, you know, figure it out on your own. You can either chart it out, make a flow chart. You can cut and paste. We would Xerox the Gemara and cut and paste and show like the flow. You know, what I would do is I would do all these methods with them and then I would let them, each kid, the way they related better. I remember in my in my class, my Dafyomi class, I would hand out charts a lot. And one woman would always say, I don't understand your charts at all. You know, and, and I get that. There's different ways of everybody relating and it needs to be done in a multifaceted manner. And that's a challenge. You know, it's not, not all teachers can handle that, but, but they also need the tools. If you give people tools and methods of how they could do it, it could be amazing. There's so much creative things that you could do in high school. For sure. I, I also remember I spoke once to a high school teacher and I was helping the staff how to, how to teach Gamara. And I said, you have to make it fun. You know, you have to do skits and acting out. And, and she said, I never thought that you have to make it fun. And I said, what do you mean? If you're not going to make it fun, the girls aren't going to want to learn it. So it's also just understanding that you're not tackling this like history. I mean, even history, you should probably make fun and interesting. But this is a subject that, it, like I said before, it needs marketing. It needs, you need to work on that. And if you do that, then you can, if you make it fun and you make it interesting, then you'll get them in and then you can do the harder stuff. Yeah, I think that's so true. My good friend and colleague, Rabbi Pesach Wolicki, would often point out that we say, what's interesting? Let's find an interesting sugya. Let's find something that is fascinating. And that certainly is true on some level. But he says that often misses the point. You can have a kid who will spend hours doing a Sudoku puzzle. And sometimes if it's looked at as decoding, this is a code and you have to try to figure out what it means, then that alone can actually be a spur to create interest in a way that might be more interesting than whether or not the sugi itself is interesting. There are many ways of doing it, but it requires creative education. Unfortunately, that sometimes seems to be in short supply. Hopefully that is changing. And that's uh, encouraging to know that people are, are thinking in those ways. I just wanted to add one other point. Like here's another example. When I taught Elamitziot in school, which is all about lost items. So I, the first class, I spread out lost items in the class in different ways that were matching to the ways mentioned in the Mishnah. Actually, in the process, lost my glasses and we actually had to put up a sign of because I left them in the classroom. It was quite funny. Couldn't plan that better. That was not by design. But then once they thought about it, okay, so everyone had to pick an item and think if I found it in this way, where it is, would I have to return it or not? By the time we got to the first Mishnah, they all had already thought about the logic of the Mishnah and it was so easy to teach because they had thought about it before. So part of it, like the best moment for people is when they think of the question the Gemara is going to ask. And that's really one of the challenges in teaching is to get the kids to think first of the questions on their own and then realize that that's what the Gemara is thinking as well. Yeah, fantastic. So historically, women's Torah scholarship has progressed slowly, but surely over the past hundred years. And perhaps that very fact of the slow movement has helped to mainstream it. If it had all happened overnight, that when the first Beis Yaakov opened up, they'd had a three-hour morning Seder, for better or for worse, there could have been a much stronger backlash than the fact that it was certain subjects and only over time was Gemara added to the curriculum. So I want to ask if you think there are still areas of scholarship that should remain the exclusive province of men or rabbis, at least temporarily, because Orthodox society isn't ready yet. And if we try to do too much at once, perhaps we're going to undermine what we're trying to achieve in the long term. Does such a thing exist, or is that only relegated to the past? Or perhaps my entire assumption is wrong. Of scholarship, if there's really, what are you referring to? Like, what would be still forbidden? I'll give you an example. A lot of people say that 
when I say a lot of people, I'm referring to things that I've heard, that, well, it's one thing for women to be yotot halacha, for example, but they can't do psak. Psak is something different. Psak is a ah, province only for- That's not scholarship. For... That's in terms of practice. That's in terms of- Okay. That's a different right. realm. All right. Um, that's not scholarship. I don't think there's much, if you say women can learn Gemara, I mean, other than Kabbalah, which there's all other restrictions on, but that's not women related. I don't think there's anything in the area of scholarship. Whether women can be poskot halacha and that, I mean, I think- you know, I don't see such an issue with that. I think Adarabha, I think all the more so, it's really important. That's such an important need that women feel comfortable going to other women and asking their questions. I think it's really, really important. So I, I just think that, again, the women, what the problem is that the women have to, again, there's great programs now that, that get them up to par. As long as they're up to par in their knowledge, then I think it's great that women be, you know, help people poskin and, they have questions, particularly in the area of Nida, but really in all areas. Um, it's just it's more natural that women would go. And, and again, it's important that women see other women in positions of leadership in the Jewish world. I think where there's a place to let women go, there women should be there. I agree with you. Dr. Rivka Press-Schwartz wrote in a Twitter thread that I saw, I'm going to quote her right now. She said, not only is women's learning not celebrated and valued, it has to be justified, explained, disclaimered, namely not too feminist, not too intellectual to be a wife, not looking to be a rabbi, not, not, not. And the Twitter thread continued. And I think she's absolutely right. We hear this sort of thing all the time. And I'm sorry to say that very often these needs for justification, this need for justification begins at the rabbinic and communal leadership level. Do you have any recommendations of how we can overcome this, what I consider to be a serious problem, so that women's learning can move forward without the need for constant excuse and justification and qualification? So I think the more women go into the field and the more women go and take it to a very high level. And when I say high level, I mean, like, for example, what I did was I studied for about five years while my colleagues went and started teaching at age 22. I sat learning until I was 25. I only started teaching when I was 26. And, you know, I dabbled in teaching here and there, but only went to really leaving the Beit Midrash at that age. And I think the more women we have who spend their time sitting learning in the Beit Midrash and advancing their skills and becoming really knowledgeable experts, then I think that those excuses will, will, will end. Because I think the, the issues are that when the Orthodox feminist movement started, the women, there were no women at this level because it didn't exist. There were no places for them to have learned. They didn't have opportunities. And I think that when it comes from a place in, in Judaism, whether it's right or wrong, I can't say, but we all know that when there's knowledge, people take you seriously. And when you can hold your own in the text and, and can have a conversation at a very high level, and that puts women in a different place. And unfortunately, until now, there haven't been enough women that are filling that space. And I think that really these issues will change over time once there's a, a bigger mass of women that are in that high knowledgeable space and even on a lay level. I have a woman in a shul in Manana, not a shul anyone really knows, a small Israeli shul. There was an issue of the machitza and the height of the machitza. And they were having this whole discussion and she started quoting sources. And she started saying, well, machitza this, machitza that. And all of a sudden people looked at her and took her seriously. You know, if you just start complaining, I don't like the height of the machitza this way and you don't bring any sources, no one's going to take you seriously. But if you start quoting the halachics about it and you bring this post six says that and this, and you know what you're talking about, then people will take you seriously. And until now, there haven't been enough women on the women's side of the machitza, so to speak, that have been in that space and can really hold their own. So number one, you know, what we're doing at Hadron is number one, taking women 
who are lay women and giving them enough basic knowledge. So many women write me all the time now. I gave a shear now because of this, you know. There's so many shuls that want to have women to give shoe women. It's very hard to find. Number one, there aren't so many women capable. Number two, even if they're capable, they don't feel confident that they're capable. And one of the things that learning every day gives women is this confidence that, oh, I could give a shear. I could, I can do this. And that changes the lay people. And then there's other places, you know, besides Hadron, that are working on raising the next level of women scholars. And those places are really doing the other part, which is creating a huge number of women that hopefully in the next 10 years, there'll be an explosion. There'll be a lot of women that are doing this. But again, these programs aren't, there's not tons of women going to them. And that's something that I hope also will change, right? Everybody's doing their part. And the more women are learning to Fiomi and showing their daughters that this is important and passing those values on to their children, hopefully more women, the ex- you have to change number one, the expectation of the communities. And then once that changes, there'll be more interest and you need the programs to house these women and then you need then the next thing is you need jobs for these women to do once they are finished with these programs and where are they going and that's another challenge these are all the challenges that kind of lie ahead that is definitely a big point about having enough jobs that there are simply not enough jobs available for uh, i mean i've often wondered why women's seminaries so often employ men i think it would be ideal if the same way that men's yeshivot by and large only employ men that women's seminaries and midrashot should by and large only employ women i think that would right. so not by, just for the sake example, of being equal i think it's the right way to do it Yeshiva has almost exclusively women on staff and all their main teachers are women. And they've really taken that model very seriously. Okay. I mean, part of what you just said is talking about expectations. And I, I don't mean to be cynical. Part of the problem that I always find is that often it's almost a catch-22 because I've seen well-meaning rabbinic leaders sometimes say, well, of course women can't talk about this because if they study this, they clearly don't know as much as the men. They're assuming already that which they're trying to prove. They can't give psaac or they can't even answer questions in a certain area because obviously they don't know anything except for this particular area of Gemara because they never learned anything else. Well, that's just making an assumption, which is, it might be true in some cases, but it's certainly true for men. I know there are it's plenty also, of men. It's also men it's, like that, exactly. Exactly. There are just as many men who are maybe even more. I know plenty of rabbis who are men who, excuse me, do not know very much. And at the same time, to assume that, well, if a woman knows something, clearly she knows less than your lowest level male rabbi. That's That's got to be frustrating for you to hear that because it certainly is frustrating to me to hear it. Right. Right. So in my line of work, I don't really get that so much. Um, one funny story about it is when the, we planned the Siyom HaShas, so one of these Haredi online news something, it was called Matzav, they, there was an article that came across, came my way that said, Siyom HaShas for women, is this real? You know, and it was sort of like, what kind of craziness? What, women are learning? You know, and then, and then in the talkbacks, it was a guy who wrote, I looked at the site and it's legit. Like he went to my site and he saw that I have shirim on all the dapim of Shas. Now you can't argue with that. That's what was part of the strength of the, of the Sima Shas, which is there was something behind it. It wasn't like, okay, we're a bunch of women. We learned great. But there was something online that existed that no one could take away. You could listen to every single shiur on all the dapim and it's there. And there was clearly something solid behind it. And that's what I think has to happen. I think all this will change and it's already changed. Some of the things you're saying, I don't come across really. I don't come across that negative, the comments. I don't get too many comments. Oh, you're a woman, you're doing this. Why are you doing it? Once in a while, there'll be something out of YouTube, you know, I kind of ignore it. But, but in, in the world uh, that I am in and I, 
it doesn't happen so much because it's hard to argue with real content. And I think that that's, you know, and yes, I make mistakes, but uh, believe me, other people who teach Daf Yomi Shiri make mistakes as well. So, you know, people can claim, oh, you made a mistake, you explained something wrong, a sentence wrong. You know, everybody does that at Daf Yomi because it's such a quick pace and there's so much information that happens. And uh, I haven't personally experienced so much of that, what you're talking about. And I think that will change for sure over the next number of years. Because again, facts on the ground is what change. You talk about halachic change. When there's something content real there, it's solid. So women post who know what they're talking about, I, I think that really, you know, that that changes things. And I think a lot of the women post that exist are very knowledgeable in a lot of areas. So I don't know. I don't encounter so much of that. Okay, that's encouraging. Let me ask you as a final question about Hadron, your organization. Can you tell us just a little bit about what you do and what you hope for the future? What's your plans of how to expand it over the years? Okay, so one of the main things we do is try to, pro- the, our main goal is to promote women studying Talmud and kind of getting it out there that Talmud is for you, Talmud is relevant, It's it can speak to you, it can be accessible to you, and it can be meaningful to you. So to do that, we have Dafyomi Shirim. I teach two Shirim a day. I teach one at 6.20 in the morning in Hebrew and one at 7.15 in the morning in English. It's done on Zoom and then recorded by podcast. It goes up on podcast on YouTube. So the Hebrew is up by 7.10 and the English is up by nine, by 8 uh, in Israel. And and then that's that's our base. That's our everyday activities that we have. And then people listen, as I said, up to about 2,000 users listen mainly by podcast, also by YouTube. We've seemed to notice that podcast is more popular, which makes sense. It's a kind of lighter, easier to do in lots of, you know, while you're on the go. And um, that's project number one. Then we do, throughout the year, we do beginners courses or skills building courses. So we have some beginners courses, which are basics. You want to know, you, you know, you're missing all these gaps. So here's some beginners courses. You want to learn that we now have two courses, two three-part courses on what are basics that you need to know? What are, how does the Gemara work? How does the Mishnah work? How does the Gemara relate to the Mishnah? How do the Rishonah relate to the Gemara? How does Halacha come out of the Gemara? Things like that. What does the Daf look like? Who's on the Daf? Why are they on the Daf? Uh, then we have skills building courses, which is kind of jump into the water and learn how to do it. So it's Chavruta built classes that happen on Zoom in breakout rooms. You can, it's very nicely designed, well-guided, fill in charts and questions and with all the sources everything's translated into english also and we have courses in hebrew we have both hebrew and english courses in that which are skills building courses um we actually do that in partnership with yeshiva Trisha and rabbi nikhana dreyfus teaches the hebrew i teach the english and we do that every year of a bunch of series a bunch of courses meant to teach you how to learn gemara because it's very nice to have someone spoof feed you the gemara but i really believe that you need to start learning it on your own um, in addition, we have weekly content that we generate from women scholars that go up on our site on a weekly basis that provide what Dafyomi doesn't provide, which is a way to go in depth into some interesting topic from the Gemara. And our our dreams are to, again, expand, like I talked about, into high schools, try to inspire a younger audience, how to get the young girls engaged in Gemara, how to get more schools to teach Gemara, how to improve the Gemara that's taught in schools. We celebrate siyums together all the time. And, and we have communities of women that are learning. We mapped all the women that are learning with us in the beginning. And when it came to Siyum Brachot, we realized all these women are finishing and they're going to want to celebrate. And we have an online crowd, which is very nice, but you want to celebrate with people who live near you. So we mapped out where people live and we created 50 WhatsApp groups around the world in all different places. 
and women get together with other women in their area, the WhatsApp group, you can communicate about the doc, you can, you know, suggest let's learn together, some learn at the end of every paragraph they get together, some get together on a weekly basis, some get together on Zoom, all different options. And that connects women who are learning together and creates communities built around the learning. So one of the things we do is help those communities out, you know, with whatever things they might need to be able to do that within their communities. And then, you know, we're obviously, we have four years, but the Siyam Ashas is on the horizon, you know, how to celebrate the Siyam Ashas in a much bigger venue than last time and what the right way to do that. We'll have to start planning that in a little while and come up with multiple. We're always, always challenging ourselves to think about what's the best way to motivate more learners partnering with Midrashot also. We did a whole learning program partnering with all the Midrashot. And it was a good way also to kind of teach people how to teach online also. Like I would sit with people before and show, okay, you're doing the Gemara, you have to, you know, and here are ways because they're not all used to teaching online and online is now a new big way of learning. So so there's all different projects we're always working on and always thinking of what's the next thing and how are we going to be able to continue? Because I always think like this, we, we opened our first skills class the first year. Um, we did that before we did a beginner's course. So I opened my first skills class. I was about a year into after learning something like that, after the CM, a thousand people registered, which just shows how much of a thirst there is. And then it makes me think that if that's with the minimal advertising that I've done, could you imagine how many women are out there that we could get to? Like we really have a huge, huge pull. And it's always a matter of, you know, 2000 daily sounds like a huge number, but think about how many more are out there that, that we could be getting to and they could be learning Gemara and could be like all those other women who claim, oh, you know, I never thought Gemara was for me, but now I see, wow, I my, my eyes have been opened and wow, wow, wow. I just heard a great story that there was a, a mother and daughter who were learning together. Unfortunately, the mother just passed away and they were telling stories and they said, how'd they get into it? Well, we have dedications. People dedicate a daf and they decided for her birthday, for the daughter's birthday, they would dedicate a daf in her, in her honor. For her birthday. So of course she and her mother had to listen to the daf that day and they listened to the daf that day and they were hooked. And they said, that was it. They've been learning every day since then. And they discussed the daf together and they, it was such a strong part of their relationship together. And you just have to start. One of the things we did the Siyam Ashas was having an adopt the daf project where we had about 5,000 people who each took a daf and learned a daf before the Siyam. And for most, many of those people, it was their first daf they had ever learned. And that also got them hooked. They realized, oh, I could do this. So it's a lot of thinking about how to break that that PR job that people did for so many years, teaching people and the expectations of our communities that this isn't for you, slowly changing those expectations. That's wonderful. And what's the web address? It's hadron.org.il. Hadron.org.il. Okay, Rabbanit Michelle Farber. Thank you for doing so much for Klal Yisrael, and I think the work you're doing is just so crucial. Encouraging more people to learn Torah is always a good thing, and making it something which they can enjoy and doing it in an engaging way. When you talk also about the methodology of teaching, that's such an important aspect that people often forget. So thank you so much for joining me today. This is great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. 
please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.